Welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast, where we feature women who are nailing it in life. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Julie Fetterman, and welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast. I want to take a minute just to share why I created the Legit Lady Podcast. So... I want a space where people can see themselves in the stories being told and become unapologetically motivated to take action. As women, we have more similarities than we might think, especially in this era with a spotlight on issues like sexual assault, wage disparity, body image, oppressive legislation, mental and physical health, childcare, and education. This podcast is a place where in this wild, twisted, and wonderful world we live in, we can be illuminated by the beacons of light and the legit ladies we bring on. We are strong. We are resilient. We are smart, bold, and total badasses. The most defiant and bravest thing that we can do is have a powerful voice. So thank you, especially you, for being part of this adventure to help inspire the world. And if you love what we're doing, you love what you're hearing, please share this broadly, share it on social media, share it with your friends, everyone who will listen, so we can continue spreading this message. So for episode one of the Legit Lady podcast, we are so lucky to have Kate Knox, also known as Knox Harder, the cheesecake darling. She is one of two artistic directors for High Society Cabaret. She's also a dancer, a choreographer, performer, and showgirl. All of the things. Very talented uh, dancer that we have here. And I met Kate uh, back in the day, I think, in musical theater camp since I used to do a ton of performing arts and I still am a dancer as well. So had the pleasure of meeting her as a teacher and coach and have shared the stage with her a couple of times as well. So she is truly a trailblazer in the local community here. And really I'm looking forward to all of the great projects that she is building as she single-handedly really tries to redefine what Toronto dance community looks and feels like. And I certainly see huge things on her horizon as well. The last podcast I did, I got in trouble. They actually had to put, because it was on uh, uh, Spotify and iTunes, and they actually had to put the explicit label on it. Oh, really? Because I curse so much. <laughs> Honestly, be yourself. This is okay. this is be your authentic self. I, I don't care, and I, I genuinely Sweet. want you to be who you are, and that's why I invited you here. So <laughs> I'm well, just getting – I've gotten in trouble for, for my swearing. You're I good. Love, I love a good curse word. I know. Well, well-behaved women rarely, rarely make history. history. Done. <laughs> cool. Well, Kate, thank you so much for being here. Oh, for I'm so thrilled to be here. Episode number one. What? Yeah. <laughs> I'm 
on the inaugural episode? You didn't tell me that part. I know, I know, I know. I I wanted you to say yes. Of course I'm going to say yes. Amazing. So of the Legit Lady podcast, where we're going to get to know you a little bit more through 10 main questions with, I'm sure, a bunch of follow-up questions. Awesome. (laughs) And as you've already seen, some of these questions are doozies. They're, wow, yeah. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, we don't go easy here. But this is really for us to learn a little bit more about you and what makes you so phenomenal. And Uh as I mentioned, I've really admired you and what you do. And so, yeah, I think everyone's (laughs) going to have a lot to learn. Thank you. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm excited. I'm really, I'm really excited. I can't believe I'm on the first one. Wow. Okay. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) You're awesome. Don't even worry. Cool. So to kick things off right off the bat, question number one, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh man. Oh, we're going to dive in without checking for rocks. Uh, What, what, uh, um, I, I think I, I tell myself two things. The first one is, I feel like it's so cliche. Like I can't, I can't get out of the fact that it sounds so cliche in my head, but fuck everyone else. Don't listen to what everyone else says. Like it really is a detriment. Like, I, and, and I get it. Like you, you want to be respected. You want people to see you a certain way. You want, you want that approval, And I think there's a right and a wrong way to go about it. But the second you start taking everyone's opinion and everyone's advice, I use that in heavy quotations, Mm -hmm. uh, too seriously, you end up kind of losing yourself and you end up kind of losing whatever special was yours to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also a lot of people who don't, they say they do, but they don't have your best interest at heart. They don't. They have their best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. And for some of them, in my experience, uh, they they want to keep you down. They want to like make sure that you don't surpass them, that you that you don't rock the boat, that you don't break the status quo, that you don't <laughs> that you don't do what you're not supposed to do. And the most brilliant things come out of doing what you're not supposed to do and knowing you're not supposed to do it. <laughs> Right. You know, as long as you're not hurting anyone. And I, then I think the second thing I would tell myself is trust your gut. I feel like this is something that every woman understands. Like, how many times as, as a kid did you do that stupid thing and you knew deep down it wasn't right or didn't feel good or something and and someone came at you and went, yeah, but but everyone else is doing it or this is what's supposed to be done. And, and you knew somewhere in you that, like, no, that's not what I want to do. Right. So I, yeah. If I if I did more of those two things, um, things might have been different. Mm-hmm. Things might have turned out differently for a lot of different things, but at the same time, they turned out the way they did, and I'm here now. So it's <laughs> you yeah, made that's, it. That's what I would tell. Yeah, that's what I tell any. I tell myself at my age, and as confused as I was as a teenager, right? Um, yeah, fuck everyone else. They're not always there for you, and follow your gut because it's. <laughs> in my history it's almost always been right like sometimes you don't learn that till after the fact but it's almost always been right that it's just like that little gut intuition that says nah it's got to be this way yep yeah follow that follow that stupid little voice because it's powerful and it will take you in the right direction it's even true. if everyone says it's the wrong direction <laughs> it's true man it's really your your true compass yeah I think it took me years to figure out that one it's uh 
it's uh it was tricky there were a lot of there were a lot of people around me who said they had their my best interest at heart um a lot of friends that said they had my best interest at heart and then we'd get to the end of the road and I I'd be <laughs> I'd be left empty-handed and everyone else is walking away with something special and like well where the fuck was I in all this mm-hmm. and so I really had to learn the hard way that it's that it is paying attention to that little voice while while taking everything that comes from other people with a massive grain of salt because mm-hmm. you really got to examine what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. It's very seldom that I find that there are people, that, like those people exist and I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by them now. Um, the people that actually uh, are kind and giving and want to give love and support. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but they can be hard to find if you don't know how to look for them mm-hmm. and you've got to surround yourself with them. But when you're not surrounded by them, it's, it's hard to navigate. Fucking teenage years are, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, like, <laughs> <laughs> like ah, yeah, I don't like thinking about those years. Like they were fundamental and whatever. And they mm-hmm. made me who I am. But at the same time, I don't like thinking about those years. There's a bunch of stupid mistakes in there that I should have known better. And my adult self, yells at my teenage self all the time going you idiot you fucking knew this was gonna happen and you still went and you still went with that chick and you still did that stupid thing yep what did we learn like it's <laughs> attention all teenagers listening <laughs> don't beat yourself up it, it's funny you mentioned a, a couple of really great things where people are often trying to bring you down even if you're rising to the top and oh. that's that's a that's I know that I've lived that but uh it it was funny a a friend of mine told me about crab fishing and as soon as this topic came up I was like what um so crab fishing you're trying to put these crabs in a bucket and these crabs are all trying to get out of the bucket but then there's crabs that are trying to pull that crab that's almost at the top all the way back down again to stay in the bucket yeah so there's a chaos song that just popped in my head as you said it. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> no, and it, it's grabbing the bucket. It's so right, but it's so true. And 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 I think especially uh, again, I think who you surround yourself with is really important. But it takes mm-hmm. years to find yourself around the right people, and it's mm-hmm. it's its own self discovery to do it. Um, but yeah, I I I've learned I've learned in my thirty plus years on this earth that it's. It, that there are a lot of people that let their insecurity and their ego feed their actions um, and will make you responsible for it when it's their issue. You know what I mean? Like it's, and yeah, it's totally that case where it's like you rise too fast and I feel, mm, I'm going to be critical for a second. I feel in this city, especially in a city like Toronto, personality of Toronto, especially is that you rise too high, too fast. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be someone who has to be on the opposite end of that to go, well, you shouldn't, or you shouldn't, or it couldn't be, or it shouldn't be. Like it's, I've, I've come across that too many times, not just from my own personal experience, but as a, as an outside eye to watching other people. And some of the comments I've heard on, you know, someone does something amazing and I'm looking at this amazing work going, holy shit, this is what this city needs. This is great. This is groundbreaking. And there's already little gremlins on the sidelines going, well, you want to know how they got there. And I'm like, Jesus (laughs) fucking Christ, can you just take a moment and enjoy that progress has been made for someone and then push yourself to be better for it? Like it's the, yeah, it's that insecurity and that ego and that, that uh, to me, that's what a lack of self-worth is is people who who have to naysay off the bat without thinking actually critically. Not that you shouldn't criticize and think critically about things, but who are very, very 
quick to question things mm-hmm. unintelligently. It makes me sound like such a fucking snob. <laughs> no, I, I think what you're describing is reality. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the art scene or if it's in the a more corporate, traditional oh, scene or yeah. things like that. How do you distance yourself from those <laughs> little people, we'll say? <laughs> that sounds so condescending. Yes, yes. yes. But I'm, I know or I can't protect yourself, first. yeah. Uh, again, it took me years to kind of harness that power to kind of see them before they're coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a people watcher anyway, and I, I consider myself really empathic. So I tend to pick up on people's energies. So I just, it's, it's paying attention. Not that I still don't get blindsided every now and again, but I, I'm one of those cutoff people. Like I, <laughs> I it sounds harsh, but Noted. I'm totally one of those people where I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, you made that decision and uh, we're just not going to engage. Like to me, it's, it's just the lack of engagement because some of it, from, from being bullied really severely as a kid, uh, <laughs> what your mother said was true to a degree is that sometimes they want the attention. Mm-hmm. And the second you give it to them, you validate their actions. Mm-hmm. So you can't validate their actions. You have to just move on. Now, that's easier said than done because sometimes they do things that hurt. It fucking sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yep>. You're heartbroken. <laughs> you're disappointed. You feel betrayed. You Like all this thing. And you have to just figure out it within yourself how to just go, nope, it's better without. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes practice. Like, yeah, it takes practice. It took me years to learn that and a lot of hard lessons, <laughs> a lot of really hard lessons to kind of come to that. (laughs) I'm nodding my head because I've certainly been there. I've been bullied a ton growing up as well. And I certainly have been thinking about some relationships and some friendships and things like that, that I've had to say goodbye to as I've grown and evolved. It sucks. But then you think back a couple of years later and you're like, oh, that was the right decision to make. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is that it sucks in the moment. And and sometimes it hurts for a while, but uh, I found anytime I've done that and done that hard cutoff, uh, there's always a weight that's lifted, like an immediate release of that weight lifted because now mm-hmm. it's not your problem anymore. And it's not a problem that most of the time it wasn't a problem that was yours to begin with. Right. So you've just rid yourself of a whole burden to put that energy towards things that are more important to you. It, it's funny because I, I think I've talked to a couple people about this. It's about being selfish, but be, about being selfish in the most productive ways. Yep. Not that you have a disregard for people or humanity, not that you're callous or unempathetic or uncaring, um, but that you kind of put yourself first. Mm-hmm. It's been a learning lesson to put myself first so I could take care of other people. Um, my mother gives an analogy because uh, it's a philosophy I was raised with. Uh, it's that same old thing is that, you know, the plane's going down, you have a baby, there's only one, there's only one face mask where does the face mask go to you or the baby? And stupid people will say the baby. The right people will say themselves. I was going to say, who says the baby? I've heard people say the baby. <laughs> but it's that same mentality that's translated to a lot of other things. Like, how are you going to take care of everything else when you're not taking care of yourself first? Because if you're incapacitated, then all that work that you're supposed to be doing is gone. And it's a lesson I still learn over yep. and over and over again. <laughs> I think I learned it again last week. Where I went, right. Yeah. You haven't stopped since May. You should probably do that. <laughs> yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's being productively selfish and, and selfish for, for your reasons, um, for the right reasons, 
while still having, it's a weird balance while still having regard for other people and what your impact is on other people. But it's Mm -hmm. sometimes it is, well, that's a harsh term, trimming the fat (laughs) of the people in your life. If they're not helping, I had a saying last year, I was like, you're either on my side in my way or in my dust and you better pick one. I don't care which one you pick. I will act accordingly, but pick one on my side, in my way or in my dust. I feel like I need a bumper sticker or a t-shirt with that. I I love it. Um, And you really just said a moment ago, you said it's like a weight's been lifted. So you literally are trimming this emotional fat, this extra that's just getting in the way. Oh, and it just feels, it feels better. (laughs) Yeah. I think there was a period last year where it became almost like a drug where I was like, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone. Like, I was just like, and I just walk around going, everything's so much better without these people. Like, it's... It's like these people that are hardcore minimalists in their house and they only have like a couple pieces of furniture and they're like, ah, the chi in here is so great. I think, I think I'm a social minimalist. Yeah. I like, I like, I like knowing a lot of people, but I like that core group that knows me. You know what I mean? I like the core people I love where it. I can just, you know, the ones where you can just look at them a certain way and they go, oh yeah, I saw that too. And yep. you're like, yes, <laughs> we're psychic now. Like, I love it. It's, it's so good. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Well, let's move to number two. Oh my God. I know. I know. I, I feel like we could chat forever. You're amazing. So <laughs> <I am> a talker. <laughs> it only helps. It only helps. So question two is what's your proudest accomplishment? I was thinking about the, about it walking here. I don't think I've hit it yet to be perfectly honest. I mean, I'm still, it's, uh, uh I've talked to a couple of people about this concept of time now that I'm now officially classified as an older dancer, which mm-hmm. is hilarious because I'm only early thirties. Um, but I'm, I'm an older dancer now, I guess, because you're supposed to have a career by 28. And if you don't, you know, you're put out to pasture and shot and turned into glue. Like it's, <laughs> that's how they treat dancers. That's totally how they treat dancers. They like repurpose you and make you into point shoes. Oh or... my God. It's like, ugh, like I, I don't, and so like, I remember panicking in my late twenties and then I hit my thirties and, and there's this weird switch in my thirties where I know a lot of my friends in their late twenties were freaking out about turning 30. And I was on the other end where it's like, this means everyone gets to take me seriously because I'm like 30 now, right? <laughs> it's not, oh, the 20-something said a thing. It's like, no, I'm 30. I've lived a life. I've gone through some shit. <laughs> I'm, I came back from the war. Like, it's like, you know what I mean? So, it, it, like, I don't think I've hit my proudest moment yet. Um, I think it's still in the works. Um, I think my proudest accomplishment will be somewhere around high society cabaret, I hope, as I'm like, you know, building this little baby and teaching it to walk and getting it on its own. Um, I also hope it's somewhere in the world of burlesque. I'm starting to have those harebrained ideas of, of becoming a, a headliner and touring and, and that kind of stuff. I got a taste of it last year going through Europe mm-hmm. and went, oh, shit, I could get used to that again. Um, <laughs> because most of my tours were across Canada and in the middle of nowhere. And so doing a European tour was a little different. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like a little different than jumping from like deep river Ontario to golden BC. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> which is my touring experience at that point was going to little towns across Canada, which in itself was very valuable and meeting a lot of people and seeing how people live in this country and how diverse that lifestyle is, mm-hmm. which was so amazing and fulfilling, but I'm like, yeah, I want to take this out on the road. So I really don't think I've hit my proudest accomplishment yet. It all still feels like the buildup. It's not quite where I want it yet. Yet. (laughs) To be honest, it's very humbling that you say that because I think 
even sub 30 years old, we're constantly looking for things that we can put our name on, things that we can hang our hat on right away. Oh, yeah. And as a society, it feels like we are really hungry and really impatient to get to that next step. So it, it, <laughs> yes. it's actually really amazing that you've answered in the way in which you did because it helps us I would say reframe how we think about accomplishment and thinking of it as stepping stones towards whatever's next as opposed to that's it, that's my peak, the end. Yeah, I I don't know. I This makes me sound like a massive cynic and it makes me sound <laughs> 50 years older than I actually am. Um, but you're right. Like there's this, this, this instant gratification and this instant fame that everyone's yeah. hooked on because of social media and Instagram especially. Um, and I'm, I'm becoming that crotchety old artist who's looking at these fucking 17 year olds teaching master classes in air quotes and I'm like what the fuck are you gonna teach me at 17 <laughs> Jesus Christ you just got out of your studio and congratulations you won platinum for your solo three years in a row what the fuck does that teach me <laughs> you're not teaching me anything you're not teaching me a new skill you're giving me a dated vocabulary and then you're giving me a bastardized vocabulary in terms of shit same thing with some of this like social media fame this like because I look at some of them like number one sometimes they're getting famous because they're shit like and that's a whole other paradigm <laughs> that's a whole other paradigm to be famous because you're actually terrible Right. Like, what the fuck is that conservative chick's name? Tommy something? Like, how are you famous because you're a terrible person? Like, that doesn't make right. any sense. Or a Kardashian. Like, you're famous because you're you're rich and ignorant. Like, right. what the fuck is that? But it's like even the even the talent, it's it, it's that, it's that it, it feels like it feels like that kind of accomplishment is more for the grand than it is for any legacy, any longevity, any any change in structure, any any change, any change towards going towards where history is supposed to go, and especially artistically. Mm -hmm. And I, I highly criticize commercial and urban dance for this, that, and especially in Toronto, where I'm watching some of these influencers and these choreographers from different parts of the world, and, and you know, I'm, I'm watching them play with different aspects of choreography and movement and, and connection, and in Toronto, all I'm seeing is this bad regurgitated competition video ho kind of shit. And I'm sitting there going, you're not changing anything. Mm -hmm. And you're not playing with anything new that the rest of the world is starting to experiment with. And then you're sitting here with, you know, 2,000, 3,000 likes telling me that this is supposed to be important. I don't get it. Right. Am I the only person who doesn't get this? And then my next question is, who's feeding this? Like, who's saying, like, oh, my God, I was so emotional. Hashtag fuertes are not emotional. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've started saying it in some of my direction and some of my rehearsals and some of my classes that, like, like fuertes are not emotional. Fuerte turns are not emotional. Mm -hmm. The technicality of a movement is not emotional. Playing into what are becoming tropes in dance are not the same as connection. They're, they're just popular. What you've done is you've, fed into a fad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's true. And for our listeners who might not be familiar with dance, just to quickly define, so fuerte turns are like these turns where the, the leg is going out parallel to the ground over and over again, and they're turning and turning and turning. And then it usually gets a big audience reaction. Hopefully I didn't butcher that. Oh, no, no, okay, no. Good, That's good. totally the right good, thing. Good. I was trying to think of an example that it's like, Google the Odile solo in Swan Lake it's like it's still the same three two fuertes that you're supposed to do in that ballet like no one scrapped it ever they've just put variations on it where it's like you know <laughs> the 
goddamn Russian ballet is like, we'll just add a double in between each three. And you're like, oh my God, you're a dick. Like, it's like, <laughs> as a dancer, I'm looking at that going, that's torture. Like, <laughs> Fair enough. And can, can you give us like a quick lay of the land of the Toronto dance scene or Oof. dance community? Just even high level, just for people oh, who man. don't have any exposure to that because you're saying a lot of really great references I it seems like there's a political landscape like in oh, any community yeah. but just help us understand a little bit it's more it's gonna about get that. me in trouble so um, high level you don't have to call high out level too, too uh, crazy. yeah no no worries <laughs> I mean you I, can if you want to I mean throw I'll the call shade. out the names that it won't affect them of it I call it like no one <laughs> no one fucking cares about me talking about Mervish we all know Mervish exists we all know Mervish has a monopoly and we all know Mervish hates Canadians like we all just know those things like I I hate Canadian talent. I learned something new. I'm (laughs) removed from it, so this is helpful. Yeah, um, uh, the the Toronto landscape, and and I would make a general broad brushstroke to say the Canadian landscape, is is that um, in Toronto especially, we're in this interesting paradigm where the rest of the country's hated us for decades now. Like, you go to any other province, you go to any other city, and you say you're from Toronto, and what's the automatic response? It's, oh, God. Like, it's... Uh, I've had it. I've had it working in Vancouver. I've had it working in Montreal. Like I've I've had it working even in Halifax. Like it's like I've had it everywhere. Where you're just like, oh yeah, I'm from Toronto, and they're like, oh, Ugh. and they make a face and a groan, and it's whatever. Um, but I would argue that a lot of it isn't too different from outside Toronto. Uh, it, with the dance scene, what's happening is is dance for the past couple of decades, despite its rise in popularity because of reality TV and that kind of stuff. Uh, we've always been the lowest appreciated and paid bracket when it comes to arts and entertainment. We're usually the first ones to get the the financial cut. We're usually the first ones to be underpaid. Um, Look at some of the pay rates for things like actors and singers. Um, And dancers are always on the bottom rung and then asked to do the most physically demanding work, to do the most work and usually put in the most hours um, and are usually the most abused in, in a working capacity because we're trained as good little robots. Uh, and Toronto is absolutely no exception to that. Mm-hmm. So the landscape right now is, uh, I explained it to someone, uh, is feral. Like that's the only way I can describe the Toronto dance scene is it's wow. feral. It, there's, a, there's a really aggressive competitiveness in the city uh, that's only there because there aren't enough jobs and the people who are handing out jobs are underpaying. So you have, you have people literally fighting each other for scraps. Um, and there's no, there's no structure in place to protect workers' rights. I mean, there's equity, which is a union. There's a lot of air quotes in this episode. There's a, <laughs> it's a, it's, it's actually an quotes. association. It's not a proper union the way you would have a labor unit for, say, minors or, 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 um, or education or any other uh, administration. Uh, the union actually doesn't work for artists. And they're not following up. And there's no addendum to work with non-union and, and uh, an apprentice. And it's basically a club. Like, equity is mm. a club. Mm. It's not a union. It's a club. And you have to pay to get into the club. And they make you jump through a series of hoops that you may not pass through to get into the club. And then when you get into the club, you have to pay a bunch of money to possibly not get work. Right. <laughs> like that's how it is so I'm, have you gone through that process or did you just explore it or know other I people explored it when I did a contract with the Canadian Opera Company where I had the I had the opportunity because of that contract um the casting director on that this was about seven years ago said I can wave my magic wand and have your union status and at the time just like now I was booking non-union work and working independently and doing a lot of corporate entertainment at the time mm-hmm. and so it didn't make sense for me to shoot myself in the foot by giving myself a union card a union card 
because it would mean I would have to say no to the regular work I was getting. That didn't make sense to me. So I declined. But I did do my research beforehand, and, and I've, I've recently, especially as I'm trying to change a landscape and talking to people, union and non-union, who are working in this industry, people who have worked in this city a long time, people who have left, who have come and gone, to figure out what it is about this city and, and the struggles that they've been having as artists, because I've been struggling. And I'm starting to get to the point where it's like, 10 years in the industry, I shouldn't be struggling nearly as hard as I have been financially. Mm-hmm. And it's all financial. So I'm starting to talk to people to go, okay, well, what happened here? What happened with this? What happened with this? And the more I talk to people who are union status or have had run-ins with the union especially, the more they're telling me that it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, okay, so everything that I thought seven years ago is still relevant and true. Mm-hmm. They don't really work for artists. They're not working to bring in new people. And if they do, it's all money. It's the same thing with uh, with TAPA. Um It's all about money. The city isn't like New York. It likes to think it is, but it's not. It's nothing like New York. (laughs) The city is nothing like New York, not by a fucking long shot. I would argue that it's a harder city to work in than New York because it's trying to be a city that it's not, to work under structures that it doesn't have without the jobs to create the industry it wants to be. Yeah, seems like there's a lot less opportunity. And if you had to try to think of a couple ways that perhaps either dancers or companies or people in general can help to move this towards a more positive space. What comes to mind for you? Uh, The first thing is changing a culture, and it's a Canadian culture, to consume Canadian work. Um, I've made this argument because I think it's a valid argument. Whenever you ask someone about Canadian television, what's the first thing they say? It's terrible, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's true. It's a bad reputation. It's not. Mm -hmm. We have now, I think, three or four syndicated television series, both independently and through Netflix, that are getting critical acclaim in the States and getting regular runs in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they're Canadian television. Like, Shits Creek, Kim's Convenience, Burden of Truth just got picked up with regular stuff, especially with the CW. And with an E. And with an E. Yep. Well, Anne, as we know it, but Anne with yeah, the with e for the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't know who Anna Green Cables is, and every Canadian does. Yeah. Yep. Like, yeah, but those those four shows have been picked, and they're great. They're yep. fantastic. Production, script, the acting, like, everything about it is great. It's solid. We're rivaling the Americans, but ask any Canadian about mm-hmm. Canadian TV. What do they say? We're a self-loathing bunch. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> and so, so the first thing I would say is Canadians need to learn how to consume Canadian-made art mm-hmm. and Canadian media and not be so judgmental on it because it's Canadian, because that's, that's basically what's happening right now is that there's a judgment on Canadian work because it's Canadian, not because of its quality. It's the same thing speaking as a dancer to, to I'm criticizing the dance current, <laughs> to, to the reviews from the dance current um, and from a lot of, and things like the Toronto Star, that anytime they see Canadian work, they automatically slam it. But the same thing could come from out of town, and it's, oh my god, it's brilliant, it's a must-see, blah, 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 blah. And they have no desire to even explore new Canadian art that's out there, unless it gets the social media marketing presence. And that's where we go into finances. So this switches into the next point, is not only learning how to consume it, but learning how to pay for it. Because we can't pay for that marketing for the outreach unless you start coming to Canadian work. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. You just need to show up. So you got that artist friend who's like, oh my God, come to my show. You know what? If you can't come, like 
even throwing $5 towards the artist in lieu of a ticket is enough. Y'all can afford $5. Like, I've had it happen with some of the people that work with me, and they're like, I can't make this show this time around, but I want to, like, or I've had someone donate a ticket. I can't go, but this needs to be seen. Bring someone else. I am going to donate my ticket and give you the money so someone else can take this ticket. Great. Great. There are lots of ways that you can support Canadian art, even, even volunteer, like, Go to companies looking for who needs, especially independent theater, who needs box office if they don't have it? Like, who needs help doing these stupid little things on show day? Like, who needs help running a door? Like, who needs help where? And that can be your donation. And then you still get to see the show. I do it with burlesque all the time. Like, mm-hmm. like Zyra Lee Vanity, I have no problem doing raffle for her because, number one, I get to see a bomb show. Number two... I don't have to pay for it. And number three, she doesn't have to worry about paying anyone else because I don't mind being there for some of this stuff. Or she gets to pay me less than I would normally charge because I'm like, eh, I'm just doing this for you because I want to see the show. So that exchange is really important. And then the third thing is not enough artists in the city, mm, this is tricky, either want to create or know how to create. So... I start talking about this in Toronto, especially when it comes to building an artistic economy. Um, We can't build an artistic economy if there's no jobs. Mm -hmm. But everyone's waiting in this city for a job. We're waiting for the Americans to come up here to give work. We're waiting for Mervish to drop its fucking tight pants and decide to hire Canadian talent. (laughs) We're waiting for, you know, we're waiting for that in into the industry in order to make it. But the thing is, is that if we keep leaving the power in in, in these big people, we're going to keep the industry down. So people need to start creating work to create the jobs, to start investing in what this industry is going to be, to start creating that the right kind of competition the city needs to see. It doesn't need to see competition between people getting hired. So for dancers especially, it doesn't need to see more competition for a bunch of girls to be video hoes for no pay in some (laughs) asshole's music video. Like we don't need more jobs like that. We need more people who are going to create jobs that are going to give a profit share, who are working economically, who are finding grants and funding, who are putting things up to not only condition our audience to consume, but to condition performers around to start working and start creating their own work. And also to really solidify an authentic artistic Canadian identity. Boom. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) You make it seem so easy. Uh, Do do you have a couple of examples of people or companies that are doing that really well? And I I know through (laughs) your stuff, you're doing a lot of that. And so you'll have an opportunity to plug all of that. But anyone else that you've noticed or worked with whom are kind of operating with that? I love her. And her show's opening this week. It's the end of September, by the way. AC Mensa is like, her and I have had these conversations for years in the staff room at City Dance Corps. Like years and now it's just back and forth on Instagram where I see she does a cool thing and I'm like hey girl that's great and then she does sees I do a cool thing she's like hey girl that's great like it's it's (laughs) this back and forth but AC Mensa to me is a big is a big runner um in terms of creating some of that work and creating a new structure that is needed for this city um there's a lot of independent artists that I've got my ear to the ground I'm working on a project right now that's on a boat um that's <laughs> on a boat. It's on a boat. I'm so excited for it. And I'm just helping cool. with the costuming. Um, I'm not even on stage for it, but, but they're onto something interesting. There's a couple of places in the urban community um, that are, are underground right now. They're not necessarily doing anything specific yet, but I've been talking to them and, and I've been watching some of what they're doing and, and, and there's little rumblings of change happening. Like the, the, the villagers are restless. Like we're starting to get so restless about it that there's there's a 
And I keep meeting them, which is also very exciting. I keep meeting these people where we have these conversations because I've been having this conversation a lot and they're coming at me going, I'm pissed. I'm pissed at this. I'm frustrated. And now I got to do something about it. Great. Mm-hmm. Please do something. Because <laughs> we all need to do it collectively. And this is something that I'm starting to preach that like I'm with with the work I'm doing in high society cabaret, I'm literally at this point doing everything I can. I'm having the conversations. I'm showing it in my work. But there needs to be more people who are doing what I'm doing in their own corners of this industry. So I'm hunting them out now to find out who's doing what. So a lot of the past couple of months, on top of everything else, has been research to figure out, is there a way that even a potential that we can kickstart a union? Is there a potential that we can start some of this revolution? Is there a way that we can actually set um, a, a protocol and standard uh, and something that will bring, that will elevate, for me specifically, the dance community, but the Toronto arts community and theater community as a whole? Because in my opinion, there's this is an untapped resource. This is an untapped uh, tourism resource. This is an untapped economic resource. This is an untapped educational resource. Mm-hmm. As much as there are dance programs that come in and out of, of uh, public schools, and I've done them, I've taught them, like two or three of them, uh, there needs to be more, and there needs to be more conditioning around, around uh, Canadians to accept art as the tool that it is, and not just some fluffy thing <laughs> like it, I feel like this argument was a, a few years ago where it's like art is everywhere paying artists respecting where art is because it's across the board like you know it's it, it's such a it's such a foundation to a society and a civilization that we absolutely take for granted and we don't pay attention to and now we need to start paying attention to it or else it is going to crumble absolutely and given our current political climate to say it nicely uh that is certainly going to be at risk. But I love everything you've been suggesting, especially even something as small as donating a ticket. Because myself, I've been so guilty of seeing all of these shows pass me by. I am busy as all heck. But being able to do that is just a small way of being able to at least acknowledge that. And I've had those conversations, like everyone's everyone's for want right now. Everyone's overworking, working hard. No one has money. But there are little ways that you can, even in, in a social media age, you can't go to the show, just sharing it on social media and be like, I can't go, but you totally should. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause we're all busy. Like I'm guilty of it too. Like mm-hmm. I'm uh, like the number of shows I've wanted to see and I'm like, I'm already working. Like, yeah. it's like, I can't get around it and I want to see this thing. And I just hope that they remount, but they will be able to do the remount if we get it out there. Um, and I've talked to a number of people. My goal for doing that is not just like the last provincial election, the goal is not the downtown. The goal needs to be the outside. It needs to be the 905. It needs to be like Windsor. It needs to be <laughs> like, you know, like deep within the bowels of Markham and Guelph. Like it's like, it, yeah, like it needs, it needs to go past the, the nice little insulation of, of bohemian liberals of, of downtown Toronto. And it needs to go out to the suburbanites because those are the ones that need to know how important this is because they don't. They're in their little bubble. Yep. You know, the same bubble that everyone voted in Doug Ford. Like, yep. it's like it needs to pop a little bit to go, this is why this is important. So I, I think it also needs to be for artists, it's going to be the challenge if we're going to make some of this change and 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 teach Canadians how to absorb it is 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 the downtown's already there they'll come it's reaching out to the people that need to see it that need to hear these messages that um 
for all my, because I consider myself a storyteller, for all my storytellers that need to hear these stories, that need to hear stories that they don't know, just so that they know that other lives exist out of their little bubble. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, to me, that's the important one. It, it's, it's, it's that smart targeting towards an audience that wouldn't normally see your show mm-hmm. and trying to see, well, okay, well, what can I do to bring you in to show you that this is what you need? You know what I mean? Agreed. So calling all suburbs, <laughs> come support some incredible, incredible art. Um, well, I do want to make sure we can get through all these questions <laughs> because I feel like we've got a little while to go, but everything you're saying is so incredible. And I think <laughs> with all that busyness, question number three how do you balance work and life? The short answer is I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like anyone who says that they have that balance is flat out lying. Like, that, it's bullshit. It's so, it, no. No, it's bullshit. Like, <laughs> how many self-help books, fucking think pieces have you seen where it's like, find the balance between your career and your family. La, 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 la. Like, it's such bullshit. No, 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 no. There's, the, the balance is never sustainable. You're always going to try to work for the balance, but let's be real. It's, 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 it's switching rocks back and forth on a scale. You're never really going to get it fully balanced. Uh, so it is about balance, but it's not. If you think it's some of this weird idyllic thing, it's not. I, I, <laughs> to some of my younger company members, it's about priorities and priorities in, in list of what is most immediate and what is like, what's immediately coming up and what is the most urgent, what is the most important. Um, and to me, that's the only way I know how to do it is, is day by day and week by week. I mean, I try to plan for the long term, um, but it, it's, it's, sometimes it just ends up being day by day because there's a lot going on. And then finding ways to be present um, when you're there, which is always the hard part when you're doing so many things is that you still have to find moments to be present wherever you are, whatever that means, whether you're present at another job, whether you're present on another project, um, or whether, as I was last week, uh, being present and doing nothing, because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's also important. Um, the only advice I can give to find that balance is don't ignore the personal priorities, because it's really easy to set aside, um, especially when you're in a position like me, where I'm, I, I've, I'm not married, I don't have kids, uh, I don't have things that demand my attention at home the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can put myself off. But even to anyone who's a mother or a parent, uh, don't put yourself off uh, even for your children. You Again, you've got to stick around and take care of those kids, so you got to take care of yourself too. So then it just becomes about scheduling, honestly. Mm-hmm. I've learned to master the art of scheduling, Um day by day, week by week, month by month, and sometimes year by year, figuring out what I want to do is it's about, it's about scheduling. I feel like my life is not about a balance. It's a game of Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's just taking the blocks as they're coming in and moving them around to make sure they fit. And every now and again, I clear a bar and I go, great, more space. Holy crap. Let's hope it doesn't hit the ceiling. Like it's like, <laughs> it feels less like a tightrope walk and more like a game of Tetris. Like that's, yeah, like that's what it feels like. And, and, you know, and, and burnout is when you hit the ceiling and you got to restart the game. Um, and you want to try to go as long as you can without hitting burnout. Um, that's basically it. I, I think, I think the idea of a work life balance is an illusion 
and I have questions for anyone who says that they've achieved it. I think they're liars. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you lying about. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's a constant uh, struggle, um, and it's also learning to be kind to yourself to yourself as you struggle with it because it's never consistent ever. And just when you think you have the formula, something's going to come around and go, that was cute that you thought that and totally throw it out of whack. <laughs> yeah. Life is famous for its curveballs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good time. Keeps it interesting. <laughs> it's true. No, it's true. I know. I'll get into a situation where I blink and my laundry pile seems to have just quadrupled. Oh, and... that's me right now. I'm just closing a show. <laughs> like my personal laundry and then show laundry that I haven't touched in a week yet. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Because there are other people that need these pieces, I should probably start washing them. <laughs> They've been sitting on the floor in my apartment for a little while. I yep. probably should do something about it. <laughs> which which one smells worse? Oh, the boys always do. Yeah, the show laundry. Oh yeah, the show yeah. laun the show like because like my my boyfriend oddly enough doesn't he doesn't have a stink to him even though he's running and he's exercising and that kind of stuff. I find he's not bad, but any of my male dancers, any of my male actors uh, from any of the shows that we do. Um, and cause they're running around, they're doing a show and you know how much energy goes into doing a show. It's, right. it's a lot. It's, it's more than I think people realize uh, there's, their laundry is always the worst. <laughs> and then I'm washing things like unders and like pants and like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff that they like <laughs> during Sweat this run, in. we had to like hang everything up. They're like, we'll just put it in the bag. And I was like, no, no. We won't. <laughs> we're going to hang it downstairs. <laughs> it's true. It's a necessity. You have to hang the stuff up to dry first yes. and then you wash it. And then you can do like a French wash on it or, or hand wash it or like <laughs> I'm, when I'm lucky and I get stuff that I can toss in the machine because I don't always get those. Usually it's a hand wash or a French wash. A French wash, for those of you who don't know, is half vodka, half water and a spray bottle and you spray everything down until it's a little damp. <laughs> And it basically just takes the smell off and takes the disinfectant out. But it's super fun to do because it's like three for you, three for me, three for you, five for me. (laughs) I have never done that, but now I I certainly think it's a thing. Do you think it works with whiskey or just vodka? Vodka. Because it has to be be pure and there can't be any sugars in it. Got it. So it's like vodka doesn't have any sugars in it, but it's alcohol. Got it. And it's just, it's fun. It's like the strongest vodka water you've ever had in your life if that's your job. Amazing. Amazing. I'm trying to engineer a way that I can still just spray whiskey into my mouth on a regular basis and make that socially acceptable. You can do it with one of the fan things and just miss it all over. (laughs) That'll get messy real fast. Brilliant. I love we started talking about laundry. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, question four. Can you tell us about a difficult moment in your life? Fuck, only one. Um... Dealer's choice. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know where to go with this. I've had a lot of... I've seen a lot of adversity in my life. Um, I don't know where to start on this one. Like, it's not easy. I've always, in terms of my career, I've always been an underdog. Um, it, I, I joke that in terms of my career, I really fought to get here. I fought to the nail and, and fought off a lot of people in a lot of situations to get where I am. And I'm still not where I want to be yet. Uh, I still have big dreams of things that we're going to do. And things that I want to do um, in the future. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't pinpoint. It's it's a lot's happened in, in 30 some odd years. I was gonna say, you've you've seen some things. I've seen no, I, I have I have legitimately seen some fucked up shit. I have yeah. seen some fucked up shit working in entertainment and especially corporate entertainment. And and I've seen I've seen some terrible, terrible things. I've I've seen bloodshed, I've seen violence, I've 
I've, uh, <laughs> I've seen a lot and, um, it sounds so, it sounds so empty and trite when I say it out loud, but it really does change you and you have to switch your mentality to make it, to let it make you stronger. Here's the thing that I think people misunderstand about going through hard times is that, yeah, they're awful. And mm, as I'm going into several thoughts, perception is also a thing because my, ha 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 ha. I look at some people who say that they've had it hard and I look at their situations and I'm like, that's not hard. But then I also look at people who I'm pretty sure look at the things I've been through and go, that's not hard. Um, so I think it's also perception and how you deal with it. But I think it's a choice to decide whether or not you let those circumstances stop you from doing what you want to do. Because um, there's a lot of things that can and will happen that will that will put you in a place that makes you feel like you can't or shouldn't do something. And I think it's important to change the mentality to find ways to utilize it, however that is. And I'm thinking of some very extreme situations of, all right, how do you utilize that awful, slightly illegal thing into, into something that you're going to use? Um, yeah, it's, it's about mindset. And I don't want to go into details of it because some of this shit's like really dark. <laughs> I was going to say bloodshed and violence. Oh, yeah. So is there, is there one specific scenario that isn't too gnarly that, because I'm trying to think of all my, my dance career and the, the gnarliest thing that's happened was a girl who stepped on a nail and she was bleeding all over the oh, stage, I've but got, that's nothing in comparison. I've got <laughs> stories of working corporate entertainment. Like it's, uh, like it's, like, number one, it's it's riddled with misogyny and sexual assault. Like, riddled. Ooh. And the amount of experiences I've gone through in that, that regard is, like, both myself and with some of the dancers I've worked with, some of the people I've worked with. Um, there's a lot of human rights violations that happen through cor corporate entertainment on a variety of different levels, not just financially in business, but in terms of uh, uh, safety and procedure and that kind of stuff. Um, I can think of instances of, of violence that I've gone through doing corporate where it's like, I've been burned with cigarettes, I've been punched, I've been hit, I've been threatened, I've been followed, I've gone through all of this shit. Um, and it does, and as terrible as it is, you, you have to work hard to, to let it make you tough at the same time keeping your softness. And to me, that's always been the struggle in going through hard times is because when you go through something difficult, what you want to do is, is you want to you want to build the wall, you want to barricade, you want to put on the armor and you want to protect. But the thing is, is that if you if you do too much of that, then you end up keeping things that you're meant to have out because you're so closed up because you're scared of whatever hurt and whatever pain that that caused uh, to put yourself out there again. And so and to me, that's a balance as opposed to the work life balance. That's the better balance is learning how to how to. Um, protect and be smart and be hard and be tough at the same time not neglecting your vulnerability your softness your kindness and your empathy because it's really easy in this industry to get bitter and to get angry and there's so many situations where it's like yeah I've been bitter and angry at a lot of unfair things that have happened and especially in this career where I've I've been an underdog like I've I haven't gotten the jobs I've been told terrible things from casting people um I've been denied money for stupid reasons I've been at fault for things that weren't my fault like you know what I mean like wow. I've I've gone through some shit and 
And instead, what it's taught me is it's taught me as much as those people have wronged me, as much as bad things have happened, it's taught me how I want to behave and how I want to leave my impact um, and how I want other people to be seen and how I think people should be treated based off instances and circumstance and, and situations. Um, so if anything, oddly enough, it's, it's, it's taught me more compassion. It's taught me more empathy. It's taught me more care and perspective and to, and to, to not take everything at face value. You take it all with a grain of salt, but you don't also don't take it with face value that there's that with certain situations, there's an underlying thing that you need to understand. It's taught me a lot about, about understanding. Um, and figuring out how to navigate difficult situations um, because I've been through them right? <laughs> and been mistreated by them and been mishandled because of them. So I've learned, you know, and I've been able to see signs and things so I can keep other people safe and take care of other people in the process. Um, and that's been one of my goals working the way I've been working is, is to create better working environments uh, for dancers, especially because again, dancers are at the bottom of the bottom of the ladder. Like singers and actors are revered, they get paid more, they usually are put in less danger than we are. We're usually the first ones on the front lines, you know, to to take the dangerous job, to do the dangerous lift, to, you know, one circumstance, dance on a black floor at 1 p.m. in August in Toronto and, you know, come out with second degree burns. Like, we're usually the first ones, oh, good you gosh. know, to be suspended from a ceiling without proper rigging and without proper insurance. Like, it's it's usually the dancers that are put out there because... We're conditioned to obey, um, and uh, and people don't care about us, and clients don't care about us, and employers don't care about us, and we're just a dumb dancer. So it's something that I've started working on is going. Oh, okay. No, there's we're still there's still people, <laughs> right? And being able to stand up for that. So yeah, um, out of all the difficult moments I've had, it's always taught me what do I want to do if I were on the other side of this? How would I want to handle this situation? Because I've, I know too well what it's like to be on the wrong side of it right. and what didn't work and what I wanted as a dancer. So what can I do now as a director and a choreographer and an artistic director to see a situation and go, okay, in my experience, it didn't work when this happened. Can I make it work like this? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's taught me, it's taught me how to handle difficult moments by going through those difficult moments from the other end. So it's, yeah, it's tough. Like shit gets, I told you shit gets dark. Like, I was going like... to say, I mean, it's admirable, admirable that you are leading the way to educate young dancers that are up and coming and create a safe space and being the person that's opposing some of these, say, corporate uh, employers oh, yeah. to be able to say, listen, that's not a good idea and here's why. And I'm going to stand up on behalf of this person who doesn't know better and yet. it goes back to what I was saying before to that Toronto blacklist and don't burn bridges because there are a lot of people that see the structure that's happening in the city right now especially with dancers who are there to exploit it mm -hmm. because it, to them all it looks like is free sexy labor like I've got this 22 year old girl and she doesn't know her head from her ass and I'm going to make her do this thing and then we're going to decide to do this other thing and then she's not going to get paid and who is she going to Who's she going to tell? She don't have money for a lawyer mm -hmm. and she doesn't have any clout with anything. She's just a dumb dancer. So it's, it's about educating these people. Like, no, you can say no. I can't tell you how many times someone's wagged their finger at me and said, you'll never work in this town again. And here I am still working, still creating work, still hiring people, mm -hmm. still getting hired. So it's, 
bullshit, the threats that come at you about how you shouldn't do this and you can't do this and no one will work with you like this. It's a lie. It's all, it's all an intimidation tactic to keep you beneath them. Stand up for it. Like, and if you lose the work, another job will come around or better yet, create your own, find ways to create your own economic sustainability. Like there are ways around it and ways I haven't even discovered yet. Please, please. Please, if you know another way, if you think my way is stupid and you think you can do it better, I challenge you to do that because it's only going to make all of us better in the long run. (laughs) The the gauntlet has been thrown down, (laughs) which I love. And a lot of this darkness that you're talking about and a lot of this adversity that you face, especially as a dancer, do you see it being primarily gendered? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Here's, here's the thing. I said it, I said it a while back to someone because, you know, like, especially in a say like Toronto, it's primarily a female population, but it's female populated, not female dominated. Mm. And that's the major difference. I think uh, people need to understand is just because you see a lot of girls doesn't mean that we have any power. It's still a lot of men making, making decisions. It's still a lot of men. It's still a lot of male choreographers being hired above female choreographers. And there's not a lot of male choreographers, but they still get priority. Mm. And I think that's, a major issue is that yeah, sexism and misogyny is still a big part of it. And again, most of the girls that get this corporate entertainment, who are they're women. They're young girls. They're young girls, scantily clad, doing this thing. Like they're still ob- objectified, either with or against their will. Um, and and it's yeah, it, and like those jobs are jobs, and they are jobs. And sometimes they're really fun jobs. But I I think there's a lot of things to do with. Um, the the value that is being that is being taken away from women in the dance scene because how many times was I told that it's like you know be thankful for the job you got because there's 10 girls behind you waiting to take your place which is not untrue and I don't think it should that part should change because you should work you should work and you should be thankful for when you do get work and and appreciate hard work at the same time though uh, on the flip side of that coin, it, it's it's detrimental to individuals in order to dehumanize them that way. To go, well, I could just replace you. Well, yeah, but come on. <laughs> like it's, You're not a commodity No, per se. I'm not cattle. And that's usually how dancers end up being. That's why they call it a cattle call. Because you're herded into a room with... 40, 50, 80, 200 other girls and told to dance and then evaluated for everything from your dancing to the proportions from your bus size to your legs to how tiny your waist is to your hair color to the shape of your eyes. And you get the job most of the time based off that because everybody can dance. Fabulous, fabulous. (laughs) And especially in a city like Toronto where there's not enough jobs is that they don't get, they get to be too picky. They get to be too picky with employment because there's not enough jobs in the city. So they get to be fucking dicks about it. And again, (laughs) shit I've heard in the casting room where it had nothing to do with my dancing. Nothing. It had to do with the fact that I was too pale and my tits were too small. Like it's... (laughs) Yeah. You're (laughs) like, great. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) I can't change those things. And unless you're willing to pay for the surgeries that will do that, I can't change those things. (laughs) Yeah. No. Yeah, but it makes you stronger and teaches you how to work and how to get around those problems. And, you know, I challenge anyone who 
grumbles under their breath on a job to go, if I were doing this, I'd do it differently. Well, I challenge you to create the job where you can do it differently, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what we need. We need the people to stop grumbling under their breaths on the job. If you've taken the job, number one, don't grumble, fucking do the job, do your fucking job. Right. But if you have misgivings about it, then the onus is on you to create the work environment that you need to see because no one else is going to do it. You have to. Like, that's just it. You have to eventually, you know, get over the fear of doing it by yourself and, and just fucking do it already. Absolutely. <laughs> fucking do it. Absolutely. And I, I think that can be said with any industry, yes. any role, anything like that. There's so much of this, I'm going to sit and wait until the right opportunity comes along as opposed to you or actually... when the money comes along. Exactly. the right person. Yeah. Like, exactly. Exactly. Or the right month, the right week, after this, after that. Just do it. My business partner, um, Anna Yeager, Belly Puck, and I have regularly talked that our whole company has been a field of dreams mentality of if we build it they will come and so far it's proven true Mm -hmm. um we didn't wait we found the opportunities when they happened and we we went we're going balls blazing into a new chapter two and i'm fucking scared shitless of like (laughs) i would be lying if i said that every opportunity and every new phase that we go into i'm confident i know what i'm doing no that's bullshit i know i have no idea what i'm doing i only have a vague idea of what i think i know i'm supposed to do or i think i want to do and i'm kind of just going hope this works like it's (laughs) figuring it out so there's nothing wrong with not knowing i think it's more important that you just do it and, right. and make the necessary mistakes that you have to make in order to go to where you're supposed to be because you're supposed to make those mistakes. It's that weird fear of failure. There comes a point where you have to go, well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and just do it. <laughs> I love that definition. I can fall flat on my face. Great. What are we going to learn from that? Like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, it's instead of waiting for the right opportunity, the money, the this, the that, the backers, like, fuck that shit and just do it. Fail fucking miserably and then reassess and go, why didn't that work? Like, and then go forward with it. I think there's something, there's something to be said about being balls forward and, and, and risking the failure. Mm -hmm. Um, The failure is still a win in my mind. Um, if you can put your, your, your perspective around that, like it's, it's still a win. And as long as you don't let it stop you from trying again, then do it. It's the same fucking lessons we learned as kids in kindergarten, you know, try, try again. Yep. You know, it's all those childish mentalities that we've forgotten as we became adults Mm -hmm. that we need to bring back in everything we do because it's proven useful (laughs) exactly the way you have to do things (laughs) it's true we literally train ourselves from childhood to now and many of us conveniently forget these lessons yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, so question five since you're talking about all these great inspirational moments and things that you've learned who or what inspires you the most? I don't know. I feel like this is such a broad question. Um, That's the point. I know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I can't, I feel like I can't always pinpoint. When it's right in front of me, it, it's, when it's, when I see something that inspires me, it, it, it pushes, and I like seeing things that challenge me. That's usually what inspires me is something that's going to challenge me. Either it's, either that's better than what I've done, or it's better than who I am, or it's, or it's, overall a perception of better um or it's unique 
or it's or it's um, poignant or or thoughtful. Like there's there's a lot of things that inspire me, but I feel like I take it as a case to case. So there's not one. I feel like there's not one motivation. It's usually several, and it also depends on where I am in my life and artistically.、Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to draw in terms of my artistic inspiration. I tend to draw、uh, closer towards vintage, of course. Um, so I will always I will always find inspiration in in Martha Graham and Gene Kelly and Bob Fosse because I feel like they were pioneers of of dance and pioneers of industry and and culture and and、um, and aesthetic and technique.、Um, but then I love seeing things that challenge my perception, that challenge how I think things are supposed to be done. I love seeing just flat out great work.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's always very satisfying to see just great work, you know what I mean, and that in itself is inspiring because when you look at it, you know you in in great work you can see the struggles and the hurdles it took to make it great, and there's an appreciation admiration in that, especially when it comes to things like dance and theater, because、mm-hmm. um, great work. Is is usually takes hours and is very thoughtful and and seldom is it is it just a run of the muck haphazard and even when the work is planned to be haphazard it, there there were there were pylons per, put in place to set a structure for that haphazard wonder to happen、mm-hmm. you know what I mean so it's it's yeah I feel like there I feel like I'm I I look for things to inspire me regularly and new things to inspire me regularly so I can't pinpoint it. I really can't pinpoint it. But that's so beautifully said. There's inspiration everywhere, all the time, and especially in, even in your specific field. So, say in the arts, when you see a great version that's in, inspirational, aspirational for you, of I want to do that, but better, or I can't wait until I can. I love healthy competition. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny because I'm a terrible competitor and such a sore loser. <laughs> like when it comes to anything else, like fucking, like put me in any kind of dance competition. Like it's like ah crap, I'm doing the Montreal Burlesque Festival, and I didn't realize the night I was on was a competition. I was like ah crap because I don't thrive in those situations. Like I feel shitty. I'm a sore loser. I don't like doing it, but I like. Healthy competition outside of a construct of competition. You know what I mean. So、yep. like you see a great work, and you, <laughs> and I feel like I see it. Like when I see something great on stage, I look at it and go shit. Like that's the first thing in my mind. It's like that was amazing. The next one is like oh shit, my stuff doesn't look near like that. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's uh, back to the drawing board. Let's go. Like it's you know what I mean. And there's something to be said when you see great work. Yeah, I like great work. Great work inspires me, and that that. That definition is so broad, and I want to keep it that way because there are a lot of things that are great for different reasons. There's no, and I think when you limit yourself on that, you you cut off the ability to see great things,、um, and to allow yourself to be inspired, and to especially as an artist,、um, to allow yourself to evolve, because、mm-hmm. artists should evolve. You should never stay in this. You should never stay in your blue period. Like it's like you know、yep. what I mean. Like it、yep. doesn't. It, it, you've done it. You've explored that. There, then now you have to shift to your you know, <laughs> your your melancholy period or your black and white or like you know what I mean. Like it's <laughs> it, it shouldn't be stagnant.、It's, I, I feel know, like you have to say it in that accent as well when <laughs> when you do. <laughs> I don't know how much video we're capturing, but I, I I wish people could see my face too because I, I have a whole ridiculous face on the top of it. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> I, I I really appreciate that, and I think having that broad definition of inspiration is so critical. 
So with that, <laughs> question six, what is the most adventurous thing you've ever done? I feel like this falls in line with my proudest accomplishment. I don't know if I've done it yet. I mean, I've gone off on numerous adventures and I've done... You're adventurous. I, 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 <laughs> I, sometimes I need someone else to say it to realize like, yeah, that was really ballsy, wasn't it? Because now for me, a lot of this artistic stuff feels so, feels so second nature and so obvious at this stage in the game that I don't think about it the same way. That I don't think about the risk I'm taking when I put on a show. That I don't think about the risk I'm taking in, in putting our last show in the 1770s in Versailles. That it's like I didn't like I didn't see the risk in it because writing the script with 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 Anna for a high society cabaret was obvious. Like I I feel like my perception is warped on what's considered adventurous. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of what I do, a lot of people consider adventurous, and I just don't. Um, and that's why I think I, I haven't hit some of my most adventurous accomplishments yet. Um, last year, running off to Europe was a big thing. Like I ran off for about three and a half weeks and I'd never done that before. I'd never traveled that long by myself before and like, and really by myself. Like I had a couple of checkpoints in different countries where I knew people and I had places to stay, but, um, it was the first time at, at 31, uh, that I decided to, you know, do the 19-year-old post-high school before university Europe tour. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, because I feel like everyone's done it and all my friends had done it. And they're like, oh my God. But it was different because I was older. So I wasn't going there to party and drink and I wasn't going with my friends. It was literally by myself. And it became this really unintentional uh, uh, soul-searching trip um, that really, yeah, was daring. And I, I learned, like... I, I learned a lot of life lessons, but then I learned, I learned those fucking stupid lessons that you learn when you travel. You know, like my, my luggage broke by week one. I was like, oh fuck. Like it's like, you know, or trying to like the exchange rate and then you get fucked at least two times yep. with the exchange rate where you go, no, why did that cost me $50? Yeah. I am now out 25 euros that I needed. Like I it's like, especially as a Canadian, <laughs> especially as a Canadian, it's like, you know, like I made those stupid mistakes that I feel like everyone needs to make when they travel yeah. or, or like not figuring out new languages and going, I don't know who the fuck I am. Um, but it also gave me a chance to really ground myself. I'm actually a solitary person. I, as much as I work in groups and I'm a team player and I own a company, I, I like being by myself. And so it was, it was, exciting for me to literally just be alone for three weeks yep. um, and just go through Europe and, and, and safely adventure. Like I, I was in cities, so it's like nothing bad's going to happen. Despite the fact that everyone back here tried to scare me before I left going, you're going to get pickpocketed. You're going to get taken. Liam Neeson <laughs> will come for you. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, don't tell me that guy that freaks me out. And nothing happened, of course, because I, I know how to blend. I know how to adapt. So it's like, you know, key to that if anyone's looking to travel don't dress like a fucking tourist don't put your backpack on your front like carry light if you're in Paris dress nice like dress nice when you go through Paris otherwise you look like a goddamn tourist and then the pickpockets come for you like it's like it's true it's true you have to blend with the environment you gotta look like a local so it's like dress accordingly to look like a local blend in yeah blend in when I'm in Europe I usually use it as an excuse to bust out my nicest duds right, I look though? super fancy and yeah really live it up and eat all of the carbs yeah a lot of carbs and a lot of butter and yeah. a lot of sugar I'm like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. oh Paris was so much fun I loved I loved France I loved being in Paris and being in all of France because yeah it's it's very it's it's very French to like 
wear that, go makeup free and wear that beautiful sundress. Like, yes. it's like, and all the Frenchmen come in and it's like, oh, and my French is atrocious. The only French I know is on my ballet terminology. So I'm like, yes, Ronde de Jean Mondeor. Like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't mean anything. I, I was going to say, judging by that, <laughs> by that fake French, I was like, ah, yes, she, she must have like, done oh, well. I'm useless. Like, it's like, but thank God a lot of them speak a little bit of, like, just enough English. And like, you, I'm an animated person. So it's easy to just animate. And then, ah, uh, yeah. I'm just a human cartoon. It's fine. <laughs> No, but it, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of balls to actually travel by yourself. There's a lot of people who are very afraid to go oh, on those types so of adventures. Fun. It is, it is. And once you do it, you realize it's not so scary. No. And it's always scary when you start. Like I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's like, you know, sitting in Pearson or whatever, and it's like and you're boarding the plane, you're like, oh my god. Like, it's like, <laughs> I could die in this plane crash and things could happen. And oh my god, oh my god, I'm never missing my family yet. Like it's like there's still that like weird, like little bit of stuff that happens when you first start. But the second you actually get back in, on land and you start walking and you, you wake up in the morning and you decide, well, yeah, we're going to go to this cemetery and I'm going to look at this church and I'm going to go to this museum. Then all of a sudden it, it is, it, it, it's this, it's an adventure, but it's, it's safe. Like it's like, yep. and you, it's just knowing how to navigate people in Metropolis and not doing stupid shit. You know yes, what I mean? Yes. The same, you know, if you wouldn't, in my mind, if you wouldn't do it here and this is your home turf, then don't fucking do it in another country like it's like it's some of that is just common sense and then yeah again paying attention to customs and Germany was the scariest one but that's because they're they're the Americans of Europe like they're big and they're loud and they take up a lot of space <laughs> like that's just it they're like oh my god like they're German people are overwhelming sometimes mm. like holy shit like I was really overstimulated didn't help that the the the, the neighborhood I was staying in in Hamburg uh, is basically the equivalent of the red light district. Oh. So it was all strip clubs, sex shops, uh, uh, and bars, like the place where I was staying because I was dancing. I was, I was doing a burlesque gig in one of the bars that used to be open. It recently closed earlier this year. Um, but yeah, that was the scariest part over simulating. But I found I, I came across less sexual and street harassment than I did in North America because they just, it's so around them that they don't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yep. It's, it's uh, that same irony about drinking. I mean, drinking isn't such a taboo over no, there, it's so not. it's not abused in the same way that it can be here. It was the oddest thing going through Hamburg where it's like, especially at night, everyone was fucking plastered, but everyone was well-behaved. <laughs> it was so weird. I was like, because I'm doing that Canadian thing where it's like, I'm totally going to get assaulted, blah, 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 blah. And the boys are just like, oh, I'm really and I'm walking past and they're not following me and I'm like I don't know what to do with this like y'all still nice and I said no to this thing and you actually respected it like it's like mm -hmm. the fuck is this like <laughs> oh I know the things that us North Americans need to learn fuck from the Puritans here. it's because of yeah. all the Puritans that that, that came in uh. I blame the Puritans <laughs> I absolutely blame the Puritans. People so uptight, the British didn't want them. Like, it's like... <laughs> that's pretty much what it was. I love it. I love it. All right. Question seven. <laughs> On that note, what do you attribute your success to? Jesus Christ. Um... <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Oh, fuck me. Um... Uh, the first thing I want to say is how fucking stubborn I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fucking stubborn as all shit. 
and I'm proud as all shit too. So I just, I, I don't know. I don't, oh, this question is so hard. Um, uh, I feel like it'd be douchey to say, to, it just sounds douchey in my head when I'm saying these things. Uh, but just hard work, like actually just hard work. Um, I got where I am because I didn't stop working. Mm -hmm. That was just it. I, I took failures as they happened. I, some of them I took in stride. Some of them I didn't, I wasn't even successful at that sometimes. Um, but I just didn't stop working. I, I was, I'm stupid and prideful and stubborn. Mm -hmm. That's what got me here is being stupid, prideful and stubborn. I love it. <laughs> hey, it's clearly been working for you. So, I mean, I, I think that's the, the best answer that you could possibly give. I love it. it. It's funny. I remember, I remember, uh, what was it? It was in grade 10. And you, do you remember like careers and whatever, like that stupid course that's supposed yeah. to make you a civilized person? But... Yeah. 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 It was, yeah. We had like civics and, and careers. Yeah. Civics and careers. It was the new curriculum after yeah. they got rid of OAC. And yep. like, I, I was just double after the double cohort. Right. That'll age me right there. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it, it, yeah, remember, and they go through these old personality tests about what job you're supposed to have, and it's yep. all fucking bullshit. Like, yep. it was such a filler course. Uh, <laughs> when my mom, who's a high school teacher, had to teach it about uh, five, ten years ago, she, even she's looking at going, this is shit! And I'm like, yeah, it means nothing, mom. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck this personality test? Like, it's much a personality test, too. Of like, what job should you have? Right. And I'm like, Ugh. I'm already working towards it. Don't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember I had that civics teacher because I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a dancer. And at the time, I didn't want to go to university. I was like, I'm just going to jump on cruise ships and I'm going to start working, which never happened. Uh and of course this teacher went, well, you know, you have to have a fallback. And I was like, says who? Like, <laughs> I think it was my automatic response. And she said it in a paper that it's like, you should always have a plan B. And I'm like, fuck your plan B. Like, I don't want a plan B. Plan B deters the energy from plan A. Like, and, and in my mind, it was about sticking to plan A and finding nuances and ways around some of the hurdles with plan A. Because... I didn't want the plan B. And, and the thing is, is that like success, I think is a finite definition for a lot of people. You're going to have more than one success the way you're going to have more than one failure mm -hmm. and it's going to change. And at this stage in the game as a dancer, if I've learned anything is that you'll have multiple careers. It, it's, this is, this is, sounds like a judgment, but I think it's very boring if you stick to the same job for your entire life. It, it should change and evolve especially if you work in an artistic field yep. it shouldn't stay the same and speaking speaking as a dancer where i was told through my training that you know you're on borrowed time because there will come a point where you will have to stop dancing mm -hmm. your body won't do it anymore you know and and if you're lucky most of them it comes by their late 20s if you're lucky it happens in your 40s or 50s you know what I mean? Where you get to retire gracefully and become an artist in residence <laughs> or a character dancer with the National <laughs> Ballet. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and I'm learning that even that's bullshit. You're going to yeah. evolve naturally through it at your own pace when it makes sense. It's going to happen when it makes sense. But in the meantime, fucking be stubborn, stupid, and prideful. <laughs> I, it makes all the sense in the world, <laughs> accents aside. I mean, 
I firmly believe as soon as you achieve a state of mastery in something, that is your opportunity to transition into something else, whether yeah. it's adjacent to what you're already doing. So you're still dancing, but you're trying a different style, a different motif, a different something, or whether it's a new skill or job altogether. Or to elevate the mastery to a place where you think you can take it further. Yep. Um, I can think of teachers I've had and teachers I've worked with and people who are going to become teachers and great teachers that are, are have mastered their craft, um, are about to master their craft, and you can see the wheels turning in these people to, that they, they know where it's supposed to go next. Mm -hmm. So their job is to keep doing what they're doing and, and, to, and to take it to the next evolution, to take an, an art form or a message or a skill to the next evolution. Mm -hmm. And especially in something like art, art is supposed to be evolutionary. It's not supposed to be stagnant. It's not supposed to stay in the same place. Look through all of history. Look through all of history and look how art and fashion and, and visual art and paintings and theater has evolved, has evolved through social structures and, and, and political paradigms and oppressions and, and what comes out of it, uh, which is why, it, and this happened during the recession, and it's why during a new provincial government, everyone's like, well, this is going to happen, this is going to change, and this is going to change. And I'm like, yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to die. It's just going to evolve. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that's consistent and pervasive is the art. Because humans have an innate need to be expressive. And so it's, I'm, I'm, I am far more concerned with the people who work in business and real estate and, and anything corporate than I am about myself. I mean, we'll go through changes. Like, we'll, you know, we'll lose grant funding. We'll, we'll lose federal funding and provincial funding. We'll lose grant work altogether. But out of that, we'll find a new way to evolve, to get people in theater because people need it. They do need it. It's true. I mean, when our next recession happens because it will happen. It will happen. And when things go to hell in a handbasket, we need to be distracted. And so you're right. There's always going to be a need and desire for some degree of that entertainment. There always has been through fallen civilizations, through wars, through everything. There, there have always been artists and musicians and minstrels and storytellers and poets and, and dancers and actors who have, who have, make commentary or live to tell a tale or, or even just provided the fluff that you need in order to deal with the misery of living. Like it's yep. like, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's, it's, it, and that's the thing is that it, the work doesn't always have to be so maudlin and political and, right. and serious is that there's something to be said for fluff, especially when we're going through hard times, you know, that little bit of escapism to keep everyone's spirits high and to keep everyone feeling happy and motivated to push through, to feel encouraged to push on, to feel that living is worth it because here's this little bit of joy and I remember what joy is. So let's <laughs> work to keep doing that. <laughs> you it's know what true. I mean? So it's, it's something that it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's very, it, it's very interesting to watch how this evolves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even on a superficial level, why do we think Netflix and chill became such a huge thing? We, oh my God, because we needed it. <laughs> right? Exactly. We, we and need we needed to be financially accessible so yep. like for a wide variety. Like that's a whole other set of things. It's true. <laughs> All right. Question eight. What item or items could you never live without? Oh, my phone. It's sitting right there. <laughs> attached to it's actually it's like it's sitting right with my headphones in I'm looking at it I'm looking at it lovingly um 
that she thing, actually is. She I is. actually am. Uh, that thing is my right hand, and that sounds so fucking millennial that it's like my phone's my right hand, but literally it is. It's my scheduling. It's all my email. It's my work. Like my work's right there. It's all the, like, it's all my social media, which my social media isn't really social. It's marketing. Like, it's part of my job. I hate that it's part of my job. Mm -hmm. Fucking hate it. But I, it's a part of my job. Like, the marketing and making posts and reaching my audience and telling them about shows and telling them about work and all that stuff is part of the job now. So it's, you know, I was talking to, uh, oh, you probably know Thrasher. She's another burlesque dancer. Mm -hmm. I was talking to her a few weeks ago, and she was like, I look like such an asshole when I'm walking around the city because I'm constantly down like this <laughs> on my phone, and I probably look like some fucking dumb millennial, but I'm sending emails. Like, it's like, <laughs> this is my admin time. Like, it's like, as she's walking down the street, you know, one to the other in a span of a half hour, yep. where she's like in between classes or in between rehearsals, and she's like, this is my admin time to get the shit that I need to get done, done. Yep. Um, <laughs> that's dangerous in, in this day and age. It's like you can literally be walking down the street and still be working. That's not a break. Um, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But, yeah, I think my phone is the big one right now. Um, I don't know. Same thing with the earphones because I need my music. Yep. Like music's a big deal to me. Music's a really big deal. It's a, it's a, not only is it a massive inspiration for the work I do, um, uh, it, not only is it my therapy, like – uh, it, it's so in, integrated into my life that it's like, if, if I lost all my social media, my emails, I would still need my phone. Cause I'd need my music. Mm -hmm. Like I need music. Like I'm, I, uh, I don't know how I never made it as a musician, but I probably should have because <laughs> I love it so much and it's so ingrained in my work and like music is so important to me. It's, it's such an important facet of my everyday living right. is music. Um, so my music's another thing that I can't really live in without. Spotify was the best thing ever to be invented. I was great. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, I think those are the two things. Other than that, I can find ways around, other than basic human necessities, you know, that crap. Yeah, yeah, that's less, less fun. Yeah. But uh, it, it reminds me of that cool project that you did, I think it was last year, where you had a random song that you would choose or choose at random, oh, yeah. and you'd kind of improvise oh, to yeah. that song. That was a couple of years ago that yeah. I did. I did my uh, 100 Days of Dance challenge, and it was a freestyle challenge um, to test my movement and musicality and my relation to music. Um, so some of the songs that came, because I literally just took my iPad and everything, and I hit shuffle. Yeah. And the first song that would pop up was the song I was dancing to. And people got to see some really eclectic tastes, like... <laughs> My music tastes are so all over the board because I, I like, again, I'm a history nut. So, of course, you have classical music and a lot of stuff, but it's like there's a lot of music that speaks to me that that I feel like doesn't make it in mainstream media. Um, yeah, and I think people got to see my eclectic music taste, like listening, listening to really old. If you know who he is, then you're probably from out west. Um, but, but having old Ian Tyson songs on my, on my, um, iPad, because that's like, that's my musical soul food, <laughs> like that kind of that old country, like old country music where right. we're still talking about like cattle runs. You know what I mean? <laughs> we're talking about cattle runs and the actual rodeo circuit when it used to be a big deal. Like it's like what it was, the entertainment, like, you know what I mean? And talking about what life is like living out there and, and all this weird country and then Yeehaw. weird ambient like, I think he's from Sweden, but Sigur Ross is one of my favorite ambient musicians and he does amazing work. Um, and, you know, playing the soundtrack of the collaboration he did with goddamn Merce Cunningham, which is all <laughs> weird, like, vowels and consonants that sound like a broken radio. Like, it's a, <laughs> and I'm sitting here listening in my headphones, and, you know, and then I've, you know, got the 
three songs from Thoroughly Modern Millie in the next track. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> and then some weird pop song, you know, some Jennifer Lopez afterwards. So it's, it's, yeah, but it was fun and it was a great challenge and it, it, it made me, it really taught me about my freestyle. It was frustrating because I'd fall into some of my patterns as a dancer and that got frustrating because it felt um, monotonous and, it, it, and it, 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 taught me about, it taught me about my own movement in doing that because I had to break habits because I would get bored with myself. Right. Um, so it was a great, it was a great exercise that turned into a bunch of, that whole challenge turned into a bunch of different things I did not expect it to, which was awesome. It was great. It was a great, it was a great, um, Exercise, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll do it again in a couple of years when mm. I'm in a new artistic place. But yeah, you I don't, should. Yeah, I think I would. Now I'm just freestyling for the hell of it, and I put it up on my Patreon, and you know my subscribers can just watch me dick around in a free studio if a class I'm teaching doesn't run. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and music-wise, what are you listening to right now? Uh, that's right. really getting you excited. Ooh. Right now, um, because I'm writing a new show for High Society Cabaret. I am stuck in a lot of 1970s anthem rock. So cool. a lot of Meatloaf and David Bowie <laughs> and Queen because um, that's the soundtrack for this next show. So I'm starting to pinpoint the music that I want for that show. Um, and I like next week or this week coming, I guess, is, is when I'm going to start really putting pen to paper and writing the script and then email my cast so that we can start getting things together for the show at the end of November. So yeah, right now I'm stuck in the 70s. I love the 70s. I love 70s music. Like it's, I don't know, it reminds me of my mom. Like it's like, my mom's a, like a 70s hippie at Amazing. heart. So like 70s rock when I was a kid. So it's like going back to 70s music is super fun. And going into this anthem rock and discovering and rediscovering songs and, and the orchestration of it. Like, holy shit, man. Like listening to... <laughs> Because one of the songs I want to use is Two Out of Three Ain't Bad by Meatloaf. Amazing. And listening to the orchestration is how it's composed and, and the vocals and his vocals. I'm like, man, modern music kind of sucks. This is why I'm becoming another crotchet. Like, I'm 50 years older than I am. Crotchety old person. <laughs> and I was like, today's modern music is terrible. Because <laughs> I'm listening to this 70s rock and I'm like, look at this composition. Fucking nine, like, like Paradise by the Dashboard Light, working nine minutes and essentially three songs in one. <laughs> and listening to the orchestration, the vocals, and how it builds, and I'm like, Jesus, like, this is epic. Yep. Even some of the Queen stuff and Freddie Mercury's vocals, like, just, and he's so natural. Like, he's so just, ew, I hate to use this word, but I use it in a night crunch. Organic. <laughs> he's so organic. <laughs> Yeah, and hearing those vocals and how he slides up and down those riffs, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. So it's, yeah, right now I'm stuck in the 70s, but I, I always bounce back and forth to musicals and classical music, and yeah, I just, I love music. Like, I really love music. If I wasn't a dancer and if I wasn't working in theater, I'd definitely be some sort of musician. So it's, because I love it so much. That's love, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Uh, question nine. Is there anything you'd like to promote? All the things. Uh, <laughs> So many things. Uh, High Society Cabaret is the company that uh, me and Anna Yeager started six years ago now. Um, we're coming to the end of our season. It's September now. Uh, we've got two more speakeasies at Revival, which is more of a traditional burlesque show, um, on October 21st, Sunday, October 21st. And then our last one uh, for 2018 is Sunday, November 11th. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it, about 12 acts. 
more or less. Uh, and it's a regular fun burlesque show, kind of done in, in, in the atmosphere of a party. I want everyone to have a good time. Uh, we have uh, a limited number of cabaret seats available where you get to sit at a table with your drink and get a front row seat, get in the splash zone. Everything else is a general <laughs> admission, walk around, meet people, and party. Um, and then the last show of the High Society season is uh, Ballyhoo, which is November 21st, 22nd, 28th, and 29th. Um, and that show is, uh, it's going to take place, I keep leaning towards Nebraska, um, in 1901, as we follow a traveling circus vaudeville troupe. Um, and we watch these characters uh, uh, deal with things like chosen family and otherness and grief. So my theme for this show, because I tend to, in my mind when I write a script, is I, I theme the show. I give an overlying theme of what I want to play with, and for this one it's family. So the theme is family on this show and figuring out how these, uh, these uh, uh, misfits of a turn-of-a-century society uh, find each other and find themselves through each other and, and navigate being different. Wow. Yeah. Heavy. Yeah. It's one of our darker shows. Like, I was going to say, shit. <laughs> last two shows were very light. Like, actually, it's funny. I'm seeing the La Dolce Vita poster up there because the first show we did this season was La Dolce Vita, very much based off the movie, super light made no sense like <laughs> like most Fellini movies like most Fellini movies like super light and kind of made no sense in parts because Fellini um and then we just wrapped Portrait of a Scandal which was about love and sexuality and so now it's time to go a little darker uh you know we gotta we gotta shake up the playbill and keep it interesting we can't always be light and fluffy so I'm I'm really excited to write the script um I'm really excited and very nervous to see how this show turns out because uh, I feel like every new show that I start becomes a massive undertaking because I'm constantly challenging, challenging myself to do bigger and better and wider and to see if I can create something that hasn't been done in Toronto before. Mm -hmm. uh, and this show will be no exception. <laughs> I'm scared shitless. It's going to be great. <laughs> I think you're going to nail it. I'm, I'm personally very excited and I need to actually drag myself out to your productions. You should. I've been on the sidelines for too long. And after <laughs> this conversation, I am hell bent on actually coming out because I'm personally quite inspired. Uh, I'd love to round things off with question 10. Because I think we've learned a lot already, but I feel like there's still some goodness we can oh, squeeze man. out. Uh, question 10 is, what is a lesson you learned the hard way that you'd like to share with our listeners? <laughs> I like that this is the noise that <laughs> you make after most of the questions. What so haven't I learned the hard way? Uh, <laughs> I know, you're, I feel you're like tough. this goes right up there with the difficult moment question. I, I've... Fuck, I feel like most of the stuff I learn is the hard way. I'm so fucking stubborn and I'm so hell-bent to do things the hard way that it's just like, I don't know. It, uh, my dad used to make fun of me all the time. I've always been like this. Like I've been like this since I was a kid. Like it's always, I always have to get the experience. Like I'm just, I, my dad will tell you that as a kid, uh, he used to joke, there used to be a, a, a commercial in the eighties, a Heinz pickle commercial where it's like the pickle kept jumping out of the jar and the voiceover is going, pickle, get back in the jar. Pickle, get back in the jar until eventually it gets eaten. You know what I mean? <laughs> and my dad would constantly say it to me every time I was defiant. Like, pickle, get back in the jar. Because he knew he couldn't tell me any different. I was going to do it anyway. And as long as I wasn't hurting myself or anyone else, like, 
like, what did it matter? My mom's got another great story where I, I think I'm in second grade and I'm wearing a nice flowy blouse and it's November <laughs> and I'm, I'm walking out because I want to wear this beautiful blouse and I want everyone to see it. And my mom's like, you should probably take a coat. And I'm like, I don't want to. And you should probably take a coat. I don't want to. Fine, don't take a coat. And she let me walk to school that morning without a coat in this lacy blouse that I loved. And I can see it in my head exactly what it was. And then, <laughs> and my mom tells me, she's like, I let you go to school like that in November. And I think every parent must have judged me as you were walking to school. <laughs> but she let me do it because I had to learn that I needed a coat. And I didn't, it didn't hurt. I was freezing at recess and I came home at lunch and I, you know, we had lunch. And before I left to go back to school in the afternoon, I took my coat with me. I just, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in, in, in trying and failing and learning the hard way. I, I think more people... I think there are certain lessons that it's important that you not do the hard way and you are informed and you're researched, but then some of this has to be learned from experience based off the information that you collect. So it's, it's I can't pinpoint exact moments where I've learned because everything I've learned the hard way. Everything has been learned the hard way. How we made this, how we grew High Society Cabaret the way we did was a lot of lessons learned the hard way. It was a lot of, well, we're told this is how it's supposed to be done. Let's do it. And then it didn't work. Okay, <laughs> what now? Um, and figuring it out. Uh, times when we failed, times when we lost money, like times that it, it you know. Um, same thing with everything else in a regular life. Times where you, you tried something and you had your heart broken and you had to, you know, learn how to heal so you could have it broken again in a new way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, so it's, it's I don't know, I, everything's learned the hard way. Everything's learned the hard way, as it should be. It, safe is boring. Safe is boring. You gotta just try it. Just do it. Do it safely. Do it calculated, but just do it. And, like, you come out with a couple of bruises. Oh, they're battle scars. Great story to tell the grandkids when you can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> like, you might as well. I'm collecting more stories than I'm worth, and I'm only in my 30s. I still got to, realistically, with my genetics, I definitely have another 70 years under my belt. Like, my dad just turned 76, and he joked when he saw my last show, he was like, you know, we're going into the final quarter. And I turned to him and was like, let's be real, Dad, you're going to go into overtime. Like, it's just... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to follow suit on that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be 112 and yelling at someone in a rehearsal. I'm going to be that crazy old artistic director. God, I hope so. Wouldn't that be great? It's a great problem to have. And I couldn't think of a better way to wrap this up. So, Kate, I want to thank you so much for being part of our inaugural episode. You've thank been an you. absolute joy. Oh, my God. Thank you. And I sincerely think there's a ton of goodies in here for everyone to be able to glean and learn from. So thank you. Good luck with editing. <laughs> Editing. Who's editing? Who's editing? We're not cutting any of this out. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Find us on Facebook at Legit Lady Podcast. That's L-E-G-I-T-L-A-D-Y Podcast. And on Instagram at Legit Lady Podcast. On Twitter at Legit Lady Pod. That's Legit Lady P-O-D. And please rate and comment on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you love what you hear, share it broadly and proudly. Thanks, everyone.